So, true story, um, I think it was my second week to work here. <clears throat> I found a shirt for Amy, um, and it's an axolotl. Do you guys know what an axolotl is? It's like a little reptile-looking thing, and it's a shirt, and it says, I axolotl questions. <laughs> or you ask a lot of questions, yeah. So, I do ask a lot of questions. Now, as Amy mentioned, we have three kids together, and we love, 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 as a family, to go and see movies, to watch movies and see movies. And we, though, have had to be careful, because as our kids have grown, and as they, they're not grown up by any means, but as they have gotten older, um, each of them have kind of had an apprehension sometimes about that, that tension that exists in movies. You know what I'm talking about? That, that, those wait-and-see moments. We call it like an anticipation. They're building up the anticipation, and then there's a climax, and there's a resolution. But, man, sometimes my kids just could not handle it. Right? So like even like movies like The Land Before Time, okay, like we couldn't make it through The Land Before Time. We literally had to pause it because at one point or another, one of my kids was like, are they going to make it to the Great Valley? Are Sarah and Sharptooth and Ducky and Littlefoot and Petrie, are they going to survive? And they just, they just couldn't handle it, just could not take it. And so now we're watching different movies, but that tension still exists. You know what I'm talking about? In every single movie, it seems like you're asking, is the main character going to make it? Are they going to survive? Are they going to make it to their intended destination? Now, my oldest son and I are kind of math nerds, fully own it, it's fine. And we were watching one of my very favorite movies of all time. It's a movie called Hidden Figures. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It is so good. But in this movie, you meet and follow the story of three African-American women, all of whom played vitally important roles during NASA's great space race to the moon. It's set in 1961, and it's based on a true story. And y'all, I'm telling you, it is a phenomenal movie. Now, in 1961, um, computers weren't exactly what they are now. They actually referred to computers as people in this movie. And they did, NASA did purchase a large computer, but it took up like, it would have been like this whole room. It was huge, right? And back in 1961, I actually looked this up because I am a nerd. And back in 1961, when NASA purchased that computer, it cost them a million dollars back then just shy of $10 million today. So instead of using physical computers like we know of, they actually had a person who they called a supercomputer. And that's the main story. That's who you follow. And her name is Katherine Goebbels Johnson. Now, I love her for so many reasons, but she had a depth of mathematical knowledge and just a mental acuity and the ability to just calculate things really quickly. So much so that in those days, she landed a spot on the task force that was trying to solve the problem of how do we launch someone into space? How do we get them to circle the Earth for three times, that's all that they were going for, and then bring them back through the Earth's atmosphere, you know, without killing them? And she earned a spot in the room. And there are so many great wait and see moments in this movie, and my 12-year-old and I were like, like throughout the whole thing. And one of them is that you kind of wonder and you wait and see, is she gonna keep her spot now that they've purchased a computer? And at one point, she kind of loses it because they start to use the IBM, that's what they bought, and then comes launch day. So they're about to launch this person, John Glenn, into space. And they notice a discrepancy. The command operator, who's played by Kevin Costner, you're welcome, yes, you should go watch it, who's um, <laughs> played by Kevin Costner, notices a discrepancy between what the mathematicians have said that some coordinates should be and the computer the IBM that they've started to use. And so he calls up John Glenn and he says, hey, wait a second, don't load into the shuttle just yet. Um, we need to confirm these coordinates. And so John Glenn is like, hey, so, okay, but you know, like I could die. And he's like, yes, we know, we understand, you know, we're gonna get it, whatever. And so John Glenn on the other end of the line, this is my favorite part of the entire movie. 
I love all things about girls and math and engineering and all this stuff. But in this moment, he goes, yeah, get the girl to do it. Get the girl to do it. Yes, exactly. Yes, get the girl to do it. I trust her. I trust her with my life. And so they go and they get Catherine Goebbels Johnson. She does the calculations and she's in the room when the, when the rocket is about to launch, right? And in that moment, I mean, don't you know that she's just wondering like, his life, the life of this astronaut is in my hands. Yes, the tension, like just the tension, like can you just feel it? Like you can feel it in here, right? It's like, oh, I mean, can you imagine if somebody's life or death was in your hands and in your ability nonetheless to do math <laughs> without a calculator? <laughs> Y'all, I mean, it's intense, right? And so spoiler alert, in that moment in the movie, she does actually, it's, she's successful, John Glenn goes out into the Earth's atmosphere, he comes around the Earth three times and then he comes back home, totally successful. But man, those moments in the movie are just almost too much to bear. There's this tension. Is what she did enough? Was the math that she completed, was that enough? And this tension, I believe, is similar to what we see that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are feeling as they are writing both of these letters to the, Th the, the Thessalonians in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. As we've learned, they've gone to the Thessalonians. They have told them about Jesus. The message has been received. And then they had to leave them. And so throughout our time today, what I hope that we can kind of land on is that for Catherine Goebbels Johnson, her definition of success was really perfection. There was little to no margin for error for her. But Paul here for the Thessalonians, his definition of success for them is progress. It is not perfection. For Paul and Silas and Timothy, they are looking for progress over perfection. Now, the tension that we talked about, that wait-and-see tension, I believe develops because Paul has gotten to know these people. He has understood their circumstances. He knows what they're up against as they face that daily persecution. Last week in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, we learned that they shared their lives with them. And so they understood truly what they were up against. And he knows where they're going to need help growing their faith. And from the timeline of Paul's letters, we look, and this could have been the very first experience that Paul had with church planting. And so he goes there and he shares his life with them and he tells them what they need to know and then he has to leave. And I'm sure he's wondering, is what I gave them enough? For Paul in his life, he had a radical encounter with Jesus and he did experience the, the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus. But, and he had already decided for him that Jesus was enough for him. But I'm sure that just that tension as he is waiting to see, have they decided too that Jesus is enough for them as well? I mean, what happens? I'm sure that Paul was wondering if they decide to turn back to their idols like Amy talked about in week two. Or will their faith endure, like Camille talked about last week, uh, the physical danger that was threatening to destroy them? So in the passage we're studying today, just if we summed it all up, Paul is very expressive in his love and affection for the Thessalonians. And there was something about that that really like sat funny with me. Like it's almost to an embarrassing degree, right? Like, it's almost like the mom at the middle school dance. You know, you're like, look how cute you are. Look how wonderful you are. You know, like, that's, it's like this embarrassing degree. And yeah, that was like funny to me. And I was like, gosh, there's just a lot of flowery words here, right? But I think what really stuck with me is that if you know Paul and where Paul came from, the contrast of who he was to now what he's expressing to them is vast. It's a huge difference. You see, Paul was a part of a religious elite group, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the scribes and the defenders of the law. 
So not only did he know what the law said, but he defended it. So he knew exactly what the law said. And so in that, when Paul is um, defending the law, he had a deep belief, as a lot of us do, that what he believed was right. And so this idea that Jesus was the Son of God, he did not believe that. He did not believe that was right. And in those days, there wasn't the separation of church and state that there is now. And so his, his religious power also gave him a lot of governmental authority. And so he would go and he would rip Christians from their homes for a mere curiosity in Jesus. He would tie them up in the middle of town and he would have them beaten and sometimes even murdered. But he had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed. God selected him. God chose him to be the messenger to the Thessalonians. And don't you know, he has started to see that life change in them as well. And so there's this tension, this wait and see moment. If you want to read more about, Acts, uh, about Paul's transformation, you can read about it in Acts 7 and 8. But he went by his Hebrew name Saul then. So you can imagine, Paul has seen and he's done some things. And in this week, though, we see that Paul is just over-the-top excited, over-the-top thrilled, over-the-top encouraging to these little baby believers. We studied this week 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 to 3, 13, and he just starts off this discussion explaining that wait-and-see tension, right? He wants to come and see them. He wants to see how they're doing, so much so that when he could no longer stand it, if we turn the page to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, they have sent Timothy because he just can't take it anymore. And don't you, I mean, like, it's funny because, yes, he sent Timothy, and in our minds we're like, yes, like, Timothy's going to be able to text us and let us know. No, there was still, like, this <laughs> long wait. You know, there was this long lead time because Timothy had to get there, and then he had to really evaluate. Like, you say you're good, but are you really good? And then he had to come back. And Timothy's purpose as he goes there is to remind them of what they believed, to remind them what Paul has taught them, to remind them that their belief is going to cost them. And because Paul was first responsible for the kind of persecution that the Thessalonians faced, and because now he's enduring it, he intimately understands the battles that they're facing daily and wondering if their, if their faith is going to endure. And so they send Timothy, and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, the purpose of Timothy's mission is to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. So Paul and Silas are anxiously awaiting news from Timothy, and when Timothy does return, he eagerly reports what he has seen. Y'all, they're good. They're good. They are being steadfast in their belief. They're still operating as a church. They're good. They've stood the test of time. And what Timothy reports is that the persecution that the Thessalonians endured produced a steadfast faith. The persecution that they endured produced a steadfast faith. Now, I want to unpack this for just a second because we talk about this a lot in abstracts. Um, I don't believe that actually when they were, like, if they were being beaten or if their kids were being um, taken advantage of or whatever was happening to them, I don't believe necessarily that as, like, the whip is hitting their back, they're like, oh, yes, Jesus, thank you, Lord. Like, I don't think that's what's happening. I think that every single day, day in and day out, that they were sitting in their homes and they're thinking, okay, if I walk out my door today and I go into the synagogue or I go into the church and I try to worship the Lord or learn more about him, I'm going to pay for it. I know I'm going to pay for it. I used to live and I used to uh, sacrifice to idols and I used to live the way that the culture tells me to live, but now I have decided to live in a different way. 
And I think necessarily, it wasn't necessarily that the persecution, that the beating, that the physical things that they were facing, I think it was the decision that they had to make daily. I know I'm going to pay for this. I know that there is going to be something that is going to physically harm me because of, what I, because of the decisions and the way I'm going to live my life. And so every single day, don't you know they're sitting at their table thinking, it's worth it. Jesus is worth it. I really do believe that he is the son of God. I really do believe that he is the only way to the father. And I really do believe that those crazy guys who came, there's something to what they're teaching. And so that was where that steadfastness, I believe, was built. Before they even walked out the door to worship the Lord. Because they knew that when they walked out the door and they worshiped the Lord, that they were going to pay for it. That there was going to be something physically that was going to happen to them. And so, Timothy has brought this news. They do have a steadfast faith. They are willing to suffer for what they believe. And Paul and Silas's wait-and-see moment is over. Can you just imagine as Timothy comes back with that news, just that relief that floods their veins? Like I'm sure some of you can relate. We, we think we're doing something right. We love God and we want to serve him. And we're trying to do something right. But, and you get kind of breadcrumbs of affirmation along the way. But then you get like this big chunk of affirmation. It's like, right, this exhale. I'm sure it would have felt amazing. We learn actually what it felt like for them in uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 7 through 9. Paul and Silas say, In all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before our God because of you? What Timothy reports to Paul is what Paul would see over and over and over again in all of his subsequent letters. Their persecution produced a steadfastness, and that steadfastness produced a hope. And Paul and Silas and Timothy are thrilled. They are thrilled. They've stood the test of time. They're sticking with it. They're persevering. Yet, in the very next verse, in 1 Thessalonians 3.10, we see this. As we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. Anybody else be like, wait, what? What's lacking in your faith? This is like the, the scratch in the record or the scratch in the seed. Like everything stops. I call it spiritual whiplash, right? Like this is like this thing where you're like, you have been speaking so profusely, so over the top about your love and affection for them. And if that wasn't caused by their perfection, then what was it caused by? Right? I mean, I think so often in my own faith and my own Christianity, I expect myself to be like Catherine Goebbels Johnson, perfect, Right? Like I, um, when I pray to the Lord, I want a yes or a no with the same speed that I can get a yes or a no from Google, or I think that something is wrong with me, right? Like my faith, something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with my relationship with the Lord. Um, and if my quiet time with the Lord doesn't produce something fresh for months at a time, then, I mean, I'm doing something wrong. Something is wrong with me. I mean, I hope I'm not the only one who feels this way. But I'm in seminary, right? I'm not supposed to feel this way. I'm not supposed to doubt or question. Like, I'm standing up here. I shouldn't have these kinds of fears or thoughts. That's what I expect of myself. And I'm sure many of you can relate. I mean, we love God, and we want to please God. We want to follow after him. But sometimes that following after him, step after step, is difficult. Sometimes the decision that you know that you're going to suffer for, that you're making in your homes before you even walk out the door, sometimes that is hard. And so... That just shook me, this idea that their faith is still lacking, yet Paul is so over the top, like, you bring us joy and love and light and laughter. That, like, threw me. So I had to go back and look at it. And you know what I found? 
I found that throughout our verses, in 2.17 to 3.9, what I saw is that it wasn't their perfection that caused Paul, Silas, and Timothy such joy. It was their steadfastness. What brought Paul, Silas, and Timothy great joy was the steadfastness of the Thessalonians, not the perfection of the Thessalonians. And yes, because I'm a nerd, I looked up the word steadfast. Because I'm like, I want to make sure that whatever it is that they're doing to bring Paul inside, like that I want, I want to do those same things, right? So I looked up steadfastness, and I found that steadfastness is to be fixed in a single direction. To be fixed in a single direction. Purposeful determination. Their steps, one right after another, in the same direction, brought Paul and Silas joy. According to 1 Thessalonians 3.8, so much joy that it was giving them life. Life-giving joy. Their progress was more important to Paul than their perfection. This over-the-top, effusive, excessive joy was caused by the enduring transformation of the Christian believers in Thessalonica. The persecution that they faced produced a steadfast faith, and their steadfast faith, not their steadfast perfection, is what gave Paul, Silas, and Timothy joy. Now, for just a minute, I'm going to take my intern hat off, and I'm going to put on my teacher hat. So, Paul knows, he tells us in the very first chapter of 1 Thessalonians 1, that these Thessalonians were Christians, that they had already placed their faith in Jesus. They believed what Paul said about, the, about Jesus, and they were committed to following after him. That is salvation, and it cannot be lost. And God actually has a lot to say about that. I told you that there are some times where I feel like I, I doubt things. And so I was excited to look back at this because in Ephesians 1, verses 13 through 14, we see this. You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, which we also learned about came in the first Thessalonians. Remember, that was one of the questions that she asked us. What made their, what made their rece- receiving of the teaching unique? And the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And then just a little bit after this in Ephesians 2.8, Paul tells us that our salvation is a gift of God. That verse says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that not by work so that no one can boast. And then a little later on, Paul tells us in Romans 11.29 that God's gifts and his calls are irrevocable. So I was a math teacher. So when you get A plus B, you get C. So when I get that God's good, God's salvation is a good gift of his, and then I get that God's gifts are irrevocable, then that means that salvation cannot be lost. It cannot be lost. Authentic salvation cannot be lost. And that is such good news to me. Because when I stumble and when I doubt and when I expect perfection out of myself, I don't need to worry. So, then the progress that Paul is so taken with then is the process of sanctification. It's the process of sanctification. Kelsey, the author of our study, defines sanctification as progressively learning to act in ways that please God. Progressively learning to act in ways that please God. So the Thessalonians' little baby steps of progress, that is their sanctification. And their sanctified little baby steps produced a steadfastness, a purposeful determination that would witness to so many other people in their region. So salvation versus sanctification. Okay. So we can take off our theologian hats just for a second. I'm going to take off my teacher hat. 
So I'm going to ask you the same question three different times, and I'm going to give you some information in between them. Okay? So in what ways this week is God asking you to be steadfast? In what ways this week is God asking you to be steadfast? Now, when I am in the audience and I hear somebody up here asking that question, I'm like, great, got to quit my job. Got to move to some third world country without running water. Do you guys remember that I don't like camping? Right, like I don't, I don't like it. So, I, you know, that's like, that's how far I go, right? Like my mind immediately goes to like the most radical thing. And, I, and that's not, I, like, get, bring, come back, come back. It's not the most radical thing. It could be just little baby steps. In what ways is God asking you to be steadfast this week? To continue making progress in a single direction. It doesn't have to be giant leaps. Now, all of this wait and see talk actually reminded me of some personal wait and see moments that we have had in our life that we have had the honor of having in our life. And I couldn't find actual video footage of it. So I borrowed some from the internet. So take a look. Now, I've heard this illustration before in my life that, that God looks at me as I take my feeble baby steps, just like these dads look at their daughters or the sisters looked at their sibling, right? And I love that illustration. I really do. But I will tell you that it didn't really sink in until it was my own children and my own husband in this situation. So how this looked for us was um, I was generally the sending parent. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it was like when our kids were walking from one parent to another. So I was usually the one that held the kids. And I'm trying to convince them to let go of mom and to walk to dad. You know what I mean? So I would sit on the floor and I would have my legs out in a V so that I, you know, because they're like extension of your arms at that point in life, right? You're just like, oh, got to catch you, you know? And then my husband would be like four feet away and he would have his legs in a V too. And I would be holding a kid. And my view is not the best. I mean, it's like a, you know, a diaper and a bald head. And so, but what I remember seeing then as I'm holding my kid out in front of me, I do love my children. Um, they just weren't pretty from the back. Okay, so as I'm holding my kids out in front of me, what I remember seeing was not necessarily, yes, I celebrated their first steps. We were over the top, effusive, excited about their first steps, right? But what I remember seeing more than that is that every single time with all three of our kids, just over their shoulder was my husband's face. Now, my husband, if you know him, he is like even keel. Okay, nothing ruffles him. He's great in a crisis. But I will tell you, those days when he is seeing his children start to take their first steps, he was over the top effusive. Come on, I'm right here. Come on, just, just try it. Just try it. And that's what really sealed it for me. The expression that my husband had on his face was sheer delight, enjoyment, love overflowing profusely embarrassing love. A love like Paul expresses here for the Thessalonians, not because they were perfect, 
but because they were steadfast. They were resolute. They were determined. And just like Paul was to the Thessalonians, so God is to us. God's expression of love for us is the same. Sheer delight. Profusely embarrassing love. That last video, that dad is so intently looking at his daughter. His eyes will not be moved. Now, do you think that when they fell that they were like, oh, great, you fell again. I knew you weren't going to make it. No. (laughs) No. I mean, even my husband, who's like kind of sarcastic, wouldn't do that, you know? Now, I know, ladies, that some of you did not have that feeling of a father. And some of you, my hope is that when you are listening to this, if that wasn't how your father was to you, my hope is that you have seen some other men in your life who this was their expression. And you can kind of understand what I'm talking about. But ladies, hear me when I say that God is delighted in you. When he thinks of you taking those, those first toddly steps of faith, or even as you're testing out a new faith muscle, even if you're walking in new levels of obedience to him, he's not disappointed. He's not sitting there saying, oh, I knew you were going to fall. I mean, because technically he did know we were going to fall. He sent Jesus 2,000 years ago to accommodate for that. That's not a surprise or unexpected to him. He is delighted in you. Zephaniah 3.17 tells us that he will rejoice over you with joy. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will quiet you in his love. So this picture is that you're walking to him and he's singing shouts of joy because you're coming. And then when you get there, he'll quiet you with his love until he can no longer contain it. And once he can no longer contain it, he will sing over you with shouts of joy. You are his joy and his delight. He loved you so much that he left all of heaven to come and be with you. But he didn't come as a tyrannical king to dictate your every single move. He didn't even come as a whole man, a fully perfected man. No, he came as an infant, a helpless, tiny infant who also had to learn to walk, who learned the laws of gravity by skinning up his knees, who was tempted in every way before we we're ever tempted so that when we are sitting there in a fetal position and our bathroom floors and saying, God, I cannot take any more. He's saying, daughter, I know. I know. I understand. And we can believe him because he went first. God is not disappointed in you. He delights in you. Profusely embarrassing love for you but not because of your perfection, but because of your progress. Sanctified, teeny tiny baby steps are more important to him than your perfection. Progress over perfection.